Amen. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles tonight. And if you would like to turn over to Acts chapter number two, uh, we will be referring to this particular passage. But we're going to continue um, our study in the confession. And we began looking at chapter 28, dealing with of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's always wonderful to be able to uh, speak and teach on a subject such as baptism and the Lord's Supper, especially uh, as we are right now in the middle of each one of those. Uh, of course, this past Sunday, we were able to be witnesses uh, to a baptism. And of course, this coming Lord's Day, we will observe the Lord's Supper together. Uh, so this is extremely uh, relevant to us even this week. And as we look forward to uh, these very special times that the Lord has appointed for his churches. Uh, I'm going to reference Acts chapter number two just from the extent of what we see really in Acts two, especially beginning in verse 37 down through verse 47, is we really see what we could refer to as a community of believers, uh, which is a reference to the church. And we see the beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be. And we, of course, see in verse 38 of Acts 2, uh, we see Peter proclaiming the message of the church, which is repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. We see uh, the, the, the command of repentance and uh, the call uh, to be baptized. Uh, we also uh, see in verses 41 and 42 about the church gladly receiving his word, being baptized, and the same day added unto them or added unto that community, that group of believers, the church, about 3,000 souls. Uh, continuing steadfastly, verse 42 says, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. We really see a beautiful picture of how the church is to function. But as we consider again this subject of baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, we were looking at paragraph one of chapter 28, which we've learned kind of the nature of the ordinances last week, and we looked in depth at the nature of them. And tonight we're going to look at the institution of these ordinances. And you'll notice with me paragraph one of the confession says, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. So in Acts 2, as we see the beauty of the community of believers, the church, uh, friends, there's, there's no greater gift other than our salvation than the community of believers that's known as the church. And I think it does us well to be reminded of that each and every week of just what a privilege and a joy it ought to be to have a church uh, that we can call a community of believers and a community or a family. But the Lord's Supper here and baptism are practiced as part of a local church ministry. In other words, these particular ordinances are to be part of the local church. Uh, that's the way God intended them to be. They were to be carried out in the local church. 
And so last week, as we looked at the nature of these ordinances, we learned that baptism and the Lord's Supper are two ordinances or sacraments. Remember last week, we learned that the word sacrament is not a bad word. It is not a word that is, uh, suggests any sort of saving that takes place in these two ordinances. But now we're told a little bit more in the confession about what these ordinances are. And it says that they are of positive and sovereign institution. Now that'll be our primary emphasis and focus tonight. It'll be on that phrase, positive and sovereign institution. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, we know, it is by his power and it's by his authority that these ordinances were instituted and there is a commandment for us to observe those. It was by his power, by his authority. Now, these are ordinances, as we'll learn tonight, that were established for the New Testament believer. These are ordinances that were given after uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, came and was here. But what do we mean when we consider these ordinances that are of a positive and sovereign institution? Uh, now, we all have a definition of what the word positive is, and I think we would all have a definition of what, what the word sovereign means. But we also want to answer the question, not only what do we mean by positive and sovereign institution, but we also want to know who institutes or gives the authority or the commandment to observe these ordinances. Some of you are familiar with A.H. Strong, and he writes about the ordinances he says, by the ordinances, we mean those outward rites which Christ has appointed to be administered in his church as visible signs of the saving truth of the gospel. They are signs in that they vividly express this truth and confirm it to the believer. So both the baptism and the Lord's Supper are meant to be visible signs of the saving truth of the gospel. They are not what saves, but they are visible signs of saving truth that has taken place. They are signs which God has given his people to show the truths of the gospel with. When we see a person baptized, we are seeing the results of what saving truth has done. When a person obeys the Lord Jesus Christ and is baptized, they are not being saved at that moment. They are giving a picture or a sign of exactly what has taken place in them. They have been, they are giving evidence of the truth of the gospel. So when we think about positive institutions and positive ordinances, we'll kind of talk about why uh, the confession writers were so intent on using this particular expression. Oftentimes we don't think about the beauty of what we're actually seeing and that we're not given a lot of signs to show saving faith in a, an observable form. But that's what baptism is showing. That's what the Lord's Supper is showing. It's a visible sign of the gospel. Now, we have to be very careful uh, because we are not allowed, according to scripture, to use images that in any way, shape, or form try to give us a visible picture of the Trinity. Uh, we're not supposed to try to give a picture of God the Father, nor are we supposed to try to give a picture of Jesus Christ the Son. And we're certainly not supposed to try to give a visible picture of the Holy Spirit. Now again, 
Why? Because those are images that we're not supposed to try to put. That's not a visible sign that we can put in a tangible form to say, here's what God the Father looks like, here's what Jesus looks like, and here's what the Spirit looks like. But these ordinances are a way in which we can show the effects of the gospel. Now, we understand that when we see the, the elements in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine or the juice, we're seeing visible representations. We're seeing a representation of the body of Christ, and we're seeing a representation of the blood of Christ. But we're not actually seeing his body. We're not actually seeing his blood. We're not eating of his true body. We're not eat, drinking of his blood. They are visible representations of what he has done. Baptism is a sign that is symbolic of what has happened to that individual. They are buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. So these are visible signs that symbolize the truth of the gospel. So what does this mean when the confession here asserts that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution? So we really have to give some explanation of what these words mean. Oftentimes, when we think of the word, what do we think of when we think of the word positive? Oftentimes, in our modern vocabulary, we think positive is opposed to something negative, or positive is something happy or something good. We might say about a person, they have a very positive personality, a very positive uh, uh, outlook on life. That's not really the intent of what the confession writers were after here. It's not being placed against something negative or bad. So we can't look at the word positive and say, here's what they meant, something that's happy or something that is the opposite of negative. That's not the context of what the confession writers meant here. So by positive institution, we might also say by a positive command. All right. So what the confession writers had in mind here was an institution or a command. Now, this is going to be key to understanding this tonight. That is not inherently moral. In other words, it, in and of itself, it's not a question of morality. Um, it's not a question of we're not being commanded to do this because it's morally right. But the idea rather here is is the concept of it is positive with regard of what it is actually symbolizing. Now, we understand that a person uh, who maybe has never read the Bible, a person who has never even heard about the gospel, uh, they know some things that are given in God's word that are moral uh, commands. They know that murder is wrong. Okay, even, even a non-believer knows murder is wrong. There's an inherent morality to murder. It's morally wrong. It's a sin. It's a sin against the person. It's a sin against the body. It is, it is morally wrong. Uh, even an unbelieving world knows at the heart of lying is wrong. Morally, lying is a moral commandment. It is, it is uh, that which is expected. But we cannot say about the same thing that they would know that not being baptized or the importance of partaking of the Lord's Supper. They would not have a concept of that. So when we're talking about positive 
and sovereign institution here. We're not talking about something that is inherently moral. We're not talking about something that says if this is a sin, this is morality here, like murder and like lying. Now, they've got a very clear intention on why they're doing this and why they put it this way. Because there are things, even in, go all the way back to the garden, go all the way back to Genesis chapter number two, when God gave the command to not eat of that single tree. Now, in and of itself, the taking of that fruit off the tree, or whatever it was, was not inherently a moral sin, right? It was not the fact that it was a fruit on a tree that taking that, it was because God commanded that that was now not to be done. But taking the fruit in and of itself was not a moral question. It was not a question of sin inherently in the tree, but rather that God said that tree you are not to eat from. Okay, so everybody understand the difference there because that's, that's really imperative to understanding what, where the confession writers are going with this positive and sovereign institution. So things become, right, so there are things which are not inherently moral, but they become a moral thing or a commandment when God says that is forbidden or that is a command, okay? Now, just on the same token, there are things that are good because God sovereignly commanded them, okay? He commanded those things to be good, all right? So what we're getting here is the reality that this positive and sovereign institution um, is, has to do with the very, is this a moral institution or is this something that has been made moral? Now, we can study the Bible and we can understand that there are some of God's laws that are binding on all people in every place and at all times. So there are parts of God's law that have always been in place and they are for every single person who lives. They're binding forever. They're never going to go away. God's moral law is still binding. That's why we can't just throw the law out and say the law has no value anymore. The moral law is no longer binding, or is binding rather. The ceremonial law, now that aspect of it, that has been done away with. Again, part of the ceremonial law was not because the thing which was being commanded was inherently moral or not moral. It was because God said that this is what this is going to be. Okay, but God's moral law, those things that he has says, those moral law, that is summarized in what we know as the Ten Commandments. Uh, there are those who make a grave error when they say the Ten Commandments are of no value to the New Testament church. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments are not extinct. We're not, we can't just look at them and say, well, that was for the old. It's still part of the moral law. Okay? So everybody who certainly knows the Lord uh, we ought to have a desire to follow God in the way that he prescribes. Now, whether or not he gives us a moral law, a reminder of something that's binding at all times, or he gives us a commandment that's not in and of itself moral, but he says to do it, that's a positive institution. Herein comes the reality of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. It is not a question of morality. 
It's a question of God now commands us to do this, but it's not inherently a question of moral or not moral, but it's still a godly commandment. Okay? Now, because there are commandments of God which are not moral questions. Okay? But it's not always of a moral necessity. For example, uh, when uh, that God is only to be worshipped in Jerusalem or in a single place in that city. Okay? Uh, that's not a question of morality. It was also not a question of morality whether a man was to refrain from the eating of pork products, for example. Okay, now God has a right to issue commands and require obedience, but not everything he requires is a question of morality, but there's still the requirement of obedience to it. Now that's where we come to baptism and we come to the Lord's Supper. They are commandments that are given by God that are not in and of themselves a question of morality, but we still are required to obey them. In other words, we can't pick and choose and say, well, I think we'll observe baptism, but I think we'll do the Lord's Supper. We won't do that. Or we'll do those things, but we'll do them our way. So we'll do the Lord's Supper, but we're going to do it our way. God's prescribed how these things ought to be done. All right. So God has every right to issue commands and require obedience, even if it's not a question of morality. Okay, now the reason I say that is because you have some that'll say, we're only required, we're only required to obey God's moral law. That's not true. Obedience is not based upon whether it's moral or not, it's based upon has God commanded it. Now, you can kind of see where this is going. If I just say all I have to obey, and I say all with air quotes, if all I have to do is obey God's moral law, everything else is open for interpretation. God has given us a requirement to observe and to practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, even though it's not a question of morality. All right, so what do, we see? what do we see in this paragraph? Well, we see where these ordinances, how they were appointed. Look at your confession again. It says not only baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus. So right here we see that the confession asserts that baptism and the Lord's Supper were appointed by whom? By the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ordinances are something that is commanded by someone in authority. That's what an ordinance is. Someone who has the authority commands that something is to be done. It's the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who appointed these ordinances upon the church. Now, somebody might say, well, where do we have proof that he had the right to do that? Well, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and you look at Ephesians chapter 5, we see very clearly who is the head of the church, right? Ephesians chapter 1, uh, these are familiar passages, Ephesians 1, but they help us to see clearly. And it says in Ephesians 1, 22, and he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. In Ephesians 5, verse 23 and 24, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Christ is the head of the church. All authority has been given to him. So who gave and appointed the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper according to Scripture? The Lord Jesus Christ himself did. This was appointed by the Lord. So when we, a church, when we baptize a believer and we observe the Lord's Supper, we are doing that in obedience to the ordinance that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has appointed. Again, it's not a question of do we do it because it's moral. We do it because we've been commanded to do it. This, this is really of utmost importance to get, the, to get the understanding between it's not just a question of is this part of the moral law. If it's appointed and it's been ordained by God, then we are to observe it. Now, the confession says that baptism and the Lord's Supper fall into this, that later category of, of ordinances. They were not always binding. We don't even see a commandment to observe baptism and the Lord's Supper until the time of Jesus Christ. You're not seeing an observance of the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament. Now, we have the Passover, but you don't see the institution of the Lord's Supper until Jesus says to observe this until I come. And baptism, we don't see it until we get to the New Testament. Now, our Presbyterian friends make a mistake by connecting and saying, oh, yes, we do, that was the circumcision. It was not baptism. It's, it's, it's different. So we need to keep in mind that these ordinances were not always binding. Uh, you could not go to a group of believers in Abraham's day and accuse them of saying, why are you not observing the Lord's Supper and why are you not baptizing? Because it had not been instituted yet. So how could they observe it? It was appointed and given after Jesus came. Um, we actually see this in the confession and we'll actually see this when we get to uh, chapters 29 and 30. But the first one, the baptism on chapter 29, paragraph one, it says baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. Okay, to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him. Okay, ordained by Jesus Christ. It is an ordinance of the New Testament. Chapter 30, that deals with the Lord's Supper, paragraph one says, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself in his death. So this is not a, in chapter 28, is not just a standalone idea. This is building upon what the confession writers are seeing scripture teaches is that it was in fact Christ who instituted these ordinances. Uh, one of a, a helpful book, if, if you ever want a helpful book on um, 
the, the Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, there's a book that's entitled, and I refer to this often, it's a book, it's entitled A Modern Exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, Sam Waldron put this one together. Um, he says this, he, it's, he suggests that one's response to such commands of the Lord Jesus constitutes a revealing test of submission to him. Here's what he says. Despising his ordinances argues a lack of respect for Christ's kingly office. Keeping the laws of nature may flow merely from an enlightened conscience. Okay? Now think about what he's saying here. Keeping the laws of nature, the law of nature don't murder, the law of nature don't lie, those may just come from an enlightened conscience, but I love what he says, but properly observing the ordinances of Christ exhibits a love for Christ's will just because it's Christ's will. So we love it just because he says to observe it, not because it just enlightened our conscience, not just because, well, everybody knows murder is wrong. The whole world knows murder is wrong. But do, we, do they understand the Lord's Supper and baptism? No, they don't. So he is correct. I agree with him in that regard. Um, it was, and go all the way back to the garden, like we just said, Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat the fruit of a particular tree. What was that really testing? It was testing their love for God, their love for the Lord's commandment. The tree, again, was not inherently moral, and there was no moral law that said, don't eat of that tree. It's because God gave the commandment, don't eat of that tree, right? So there was really, uh, there was no reason other than because God had given the command to obey it, okay? There was no, there was no logical reason as to what was so wrong with eating, eating the fruit from that tree, but the reason comes in is because God said not to. And of course, the amazing thing of that is of all the thousands of trees that they could have chosen, they still went to the one that God said, do not eat of. Again, showing man's depravity, right? What man's going to do. So then what is the main reason why we're given the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper? It's rendering obedience and demonstrating our love for Jesus Christ. At the heart of it, that's what it is. And so there is this assertion and there is this clear teaching that it was appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice that the paragraph also says, appointed by Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver. The only lawgiver. So the confession asserts that the Lord Jesus is the only one who gives the law in this matter. He's the only one who has the authority to issue such a command to the churches. Now, what does that mean? That means, for example, let's put this to where we are. Our church has no authority, no right to issue an ordinance that Jesus Christ has not given to his churches. So I can't come in Sunday and say, you know what? Well, we're going to start doing as an ordinance is when you come in the front door, I want you to start washing your hands in a basin and call that authoritative and take the same authority that Jesus Christ takes and say, you must do this, okay? No church can add to these ordinances. I can't add to baptism. 
I can't add to the Lord's Supper. I can't add a different element to it. Okay, I can't, I can't take the Lord's Supper and say, okay, you know what, I, I want to, and, and pardon this expression, I want to jazz up the Lord's Supper a bit and make it a little bit more exciting. And I want to do it in a different way. Now, we think this doesn't happen, but there are slight changes that people will do, especially with the Lord's Supper, that'll say, this is completely harmless. No, it's not. If you're adding to it, you're violating the ordinance that Jesus Christ has given. There's a very clear way it's supposed to be done. And we're going to learn that through these, these paragraphs and through the scripture. It's clearly laid out what it's supposed to look like. And so that's where we have to see. We can't add to it. Now, the only lawgiver, remember I told you last week that when we see some of these things, we have to keep in mind what was going on in the day and age in which the confession writers lived. The Catholic Church, again, was exhibiting a great level of authority over everyone around them. They considered themselves to be the great lawgiver. Okay, this, this wording that the confession writers used is not by coincidence. They used it very strongly with the intent of understanding that they were rejecting, okay, this was a clear rejection of the Apostle Peter and the authority of the Pope. Okay, it's still in this day and age, if the Pope stands up and says something in the Vatican and says, jump, people say, how high? Even if it's a violation of scripture, they will say the Pope said it, so that's law. Problem is, that's heretical. Problem is, he doesn't have the authority. This was, a, this was a clear statement against the papacy, against the pope, and saying the Catholic Church does not have the authority to add to anything, especially the ordinances. Well, guess what they do with baptism and guess what they do with the Lord's Supper? They add to it. Their Eucharist, their taking of the Lord's Supper in their mind is saving and is actually, there's a, there's a change in those elements. They truly believe that those elements are becoming the body and the blood of Christ and that there is salvation in that ordinance. Same thing with baptism. That's why the babies are sprinkled. They believe that there's something that they've added to it. Okay, so... There is no doubt that what they were denying is they were denying that the Pope was the authority of the church, and they certainly were denying that Peter is not the authority over the churches. Now, that, of course, comes from the misunderstanding, and I think sometimes intentional misunderstanding of the words of the Lord in Matthew 16, 18, and 19 when he was, Jesus was talking to Peter about building his church. He was not saying, Peter, you're the rock, and I'm building it upon you. That's the grave error that the Catholic Church makes. Because truly, what the Catholic Church believes is they believe that each pope is a successor to Peter. So... Every pope, you push and put him all the way back, he goes right back to Peter. That's what they truly believe. And because of that, and because of their 
intentional, I believe, misunderstanding of Matthew 16, 18, and 19. They truly believe that the Pope is the authoritative head of the church, the quote-unquote lawgiver. The confession writer said, no, 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 Jesus Christ is the only lawgiver. It, it is, it's as strong of a stand that the confession writers could take. It's one of the reasons I think the confession is such an important document for a church is because it takes a very strong stand scripturally and says, no, that's not the case. Here's what the case is. And so that's what that lawgiver means. So the confession denies that there, are, there is any other lawgiver other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, some would argue and say, well, what about the apostles? They were given authority. They were given authority. Remember in our study on Sunday mornings of Philemon when I said that Paul could have used with the, with the, uh, the, the reference to Onesimus and talking to Philemon, he could have used his apostolic authority and said, Onesimus, I command you to take Onesimus back, Philemon, take him back. So they did have a level of authority, but those apostles were given that authority by Jesus Christ. And when we read the writings of these apostles and we read them to today, we are still reading authoritative documents because those apostles were granted the authority by Jesus himself. But there are no more apostles, which means there are no new authorities coming. That's why you need to reject anyone. I don't care what the, I don't care what the context is someone who claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. It, that is not what they are. I've, this church has received, over the last seven years, I've received three or four packets of information from people who claim to be apostles. And they're writing to us as a church, finding some fault with us. And it always goes back to this apostolic authority, present tense. They claim to be apostles. And I've had them actually written where it says, God's given me this new revelation. Happens more often than you think. The The amount of junk mail this church gets is astounding. How many things I look at, I don't even have to open, I know what it is. Tear it up and throw it away. There's no need to look at it. One of them, I get same guy, sends one about every other year. And it's, it's, he's an apostle. He calls himself, the opening letter says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he introduces himself. So it's out there. So he's claiming authority. So the church is never to acknowledge any other authority as its head other than Jesus Christ. Now, that leaves us with this question. There are a lot of churches who would say, all right, there's no way we're going to bow down to a pope. But there are also churches on the same level that would say, but we also don't acknowledge the sole authority of Jesus Christ over the church. See, this is not just the either or. There are people that say, oh, our church is never going to bow down to the pope but they're also not in submission to the sole authority of Jesus Christ either. They're adding things. Okay, there are many churches, and, 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 I, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be unkind, but the way that the additions to the churches has happened and the way it started happening, and you can study history when it started to change, 
is that churches began to add and change their worship, how they would worship God in accordance with the ideas of men rather than what the words of Scripture said. That's what's wrong with a lot of modern worship and what's wrong with a lot of contemporary worship is because it's not ordered after Scripture, it's ordered after the ideas of man. Now, people think that doesn't matter. People think God doesn't care what our worship looks like. He absolutely does care, and he absolutely has ordained and commanded there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And we do not order, and we're not, never supposed to order our church after the ideas of men. That's why somebody would walk into our church, and it's happened, and said, this church is just boring. The problem's not the worship. The problem is not what you are or are not seeing. The problem is what your idea is, what you want it to be. Because no true believer is bored under the sound preaching and teaching of God's word. That you're not going to be bored. Now, we're in an entertainment-driven society. There's no question. It's 24-7 now. And churches have bowed down to this, and they've said, look, in order to keep people, we have got to entertain them. It started in worship. It started in the music. It started in we've got to have this. We've got to have excitement. We've got to have lights. We've got to have a band. We've got to have, we've got to have social clubs. We've got to have programs. And it's led to the downfall of the solid doctrinal church. Because man says, it's got to be more exciting than this. Well, the reality is, is that worship is to be done in accordance with the scriptures, just like baptism, just like the Lord's Supper. Now, we talked a little bit about this on, on Sunday, about tradition, right? The transgression of, tra of tradition. Some churches are so bound by their tradition that it's often not reflective of what the scripture actually teaches. Some churches just do what they've done because they always did it that way. We've heard that old cliche. But you know, there are times when other churches have to say, wait a minute, the only reason we're doing this is because we've always done it that way, but it's not in line with scriptural teaching. So there's got to be a change. And then sadly, you have the other side of that who says churches, we have to do it because we need to make worship more interesting. It's really fascinating to me that how worship became so self-centered. Worship has absolutely nothing to do with you. It isn't whether or not it feels good to you, feels pleasing to you. The worship is about God. It's not about, is this what I, is this what I want? And sadly, in our attempt to make things more interesting, it's happened with the Lord's Supper. It's happened with baptism. We've said, hey, this old-fashioned way of doing this, it's just not working. We need to make baptisms more exciting. We need to get a little bit more emotion going. We need to get a little bit more emotion in the, in the Lord's Supper observances. No, the Bible's pretty clear on how it's supposed to look, and it's very simple. So what is the confession reminding us? It's reminding us that only Christ possesses the authority to order 
these ordinances. Okay, and to think that he is he has no right to do this. He is the one that is said is the head of the church. Now, one of the responsibilities of the elders of a church is to be sure that the will of Christ is implemented properly. Okay, now people always have a definition of what an elder and pastor's main responsibility is. And depending on what kind of church you grew up in, some people grew up in churches where the pastor really is just there to be for me whenever I need him. But biblically speaking, the primary role is to be sure that God's will is implemented in the churches properly. That the teaching of the word is proper, that doctrine is sound, that the church is set on the direction that is honoring to God. All those other things come secondary. Not that they're not important, but the reality is, is it has been given to those churches to be sure that they implement these things right. So the worship in our congregation should be based upon the scriptures, even if that means you have to change something just because it's been done that way for years. You might have to change it to something that's not so appealing. I'm not sure anybody who's in this room today was here the day we actually started having to undo what was being done just because it was being done and the uproar it caused. Because there were things that the church was doing here that we, couldn't, we, I, we could not make an argument for as to this has no scriptural basis at all. But it caused a lot of upset feelings because it's, it's just the way we do it. But it's not scriptural. It wasn't lining up. So if that means we have to change it, then we change it. Now, where we are today, where we, our churches are today, we're, we're trying to be as scripturally uh, obedient as we can possibly be. Even if that means the outside world says that church over on Peachy Road is the most dry, boring church you're ever going to go into. It's never been about trying to make it interesting for you. And it's never been, it's never going to be about that. So, these confession writers, when they talked about these things, they did this because they knew that there would come a day and there was already a day when they were adding to these churches. Now, how long are we supposed to do these? And we'll talk more about this next week as we get into paragraph two. To be continued in his church to the end of the world. So how long are we supposed to observe? Until the end of the world. That means the church never has the authority to say, all right, we're not going to observe baptism anymore. We're not going to do the Lord's Supper anymore. It's just going to stop. We would be in direct violation of Scripture if we did that. Now, the Lord's Supper, we have a lot more control over, right? Because we can do that anytime. We can do it weekly. We can do it monthly. We can do it quarterly. We can do it yearly. There's going to be an opportunity to do it. Well, what does baptism require? someone to be converted and saved, right? So somebody might leave a church and they say, you know what, I'm leaving the church because they don't baptize enough people. You can only baptize those who've repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. You, you, you can't just baptize for the sake of baptizing. But the Lord's Supper, you can observe, again, biblically speaking, it doesn't say when, it just says you are to observe it. And we can continue to do that. So, 
It's to continue until the end of the world. And when the end of the world comes, then we can stop observing those ordinances. Um, So next week, we'll talk primarily about paragraph two that talks about who these ordinances are to be administered by or who is qualified to do these things. All right. So the Bible is not it's not silent on this. But I will tell you, kind of as a preview, it's also not blaringly, glaringly loud about this matter. So we'll talk about that next week. All right. Well, let's finish uh, singing the hymn on 278. We've kind of had a theme tonight of singing uh, about the cross. And so we'll finish with 278. We'll sing this hymn together and we'll pray.